Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So we're continuing our series today on relationship above differences, and we're dealing with frequently asked tough questions. And today, I'm going to submit to you that I'm going to deal with a problem that I think every single one of us deal with. I don't care where you're at in your faith journey, and I'm going to propose a solution to it. The problem we're going to deal with today and its ramifications center around not so much our misunderstanding. I think we have a lot of understanding up here because we've heard a lot, but our misperception and misapplication of what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. Uh, We all face a number of struggles in regard to this problem we're going to talk about today that arise out of this. One of them, I think, is simply this. It's how we manage our failures in life. Specifically, how we manage those failures in our life that are recurring sin, things that we do that hurt ourselves and hurt others over and over and over again, and we always seem to struggle with them. We never seem to fully get past them. It's, it's those things like uh, just losing our temper if we're, if we're prone to that on a regular basis and the way we hurt people. It's, it's maybe uh, if, you're, if you've got a spouse or a parent or a friend and you find yourself in difficult points in your relationship with them and you find yourself withdrawing from them. And you know that's not healthy. You know it actually brings more damage than good, but you still find yourself repeatedly withdrawing from people around you. Or maybe if you're a parent and maybe it's... Uh, some of the unproductive ways you regret the way you deal with your kids. You, you get home and you pop off at them or with the stress or because of your stress, you, you know you should be paying attention to them. You know you should be spending time with them, but you end up going and escaping and you know it's not right and good and best, but you do it anyway. It's how we deal with those things in our life. And when we fail repeatedly, it's really natural for us to just turn away from God in some way in our hearts. No, we don't disown Him, but there's, there becomes this kind of shield across us. We kind of hold God at a distance. There's this kind of this, this sense of, I'm not sure about, about relating to Him today or if He's going to answer my prayer today when I pray for somebody else. Maybe it's a little bit like uh, you and an experience maybe on a sports team in the past, or maybe it's an experience you've had at work where you're not succeeding like you want to. You're losing. You're not doing as good as you know you should. You've got this recurring issue that that just keeps on tanking you. And people start critiquing you and they say, why can't you do this better? And they've been critiquing you, asking you, why can't you do this better for long enough that you kind of go, I I don't even want to hear about that. Because there's no way I want to even have a conversation about that with you because until I actually change, until I succeed, until I prove it on the field then there's no changing your perception, so why do we even talk about this? Have you ever had that experience with a, with a spouse or a friend or a parent where there's this, this issue that keeps coming up and you want to just avoid it because every time you talk about it, you just go, you know what, I'm never going to be able to change your perception until I change. So what's even the use of even bringing it up and talking about it, right? We treat our relationship with God the same way a lot of times. We repeatedly fail in certain areas. We repeatedly fall short in certain areas. And we we just insulate our hearts and we hold them at a distance or we just decide not to turn towards Him as much. And we treat ourselves the same way. There's issues like that internally that, that we just refuse to even think about because we're tired of beating ourselves up about it, right? And so we just try not to even think about it. And until we can actually change and say that we're different from our actions. And the same problem that we're going to talk about today makes it really difficult for us to have peace and joy in relationships, especially relationships where our disagreement is over what we think it is a moral issue. We have a big problem. How do we face the sin in my life? Even the sin that I continue to struggle with over a long period of time and have a close relationship with God. How, do, how can I realize in my life what Paul says that we should, that there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, but because I fail all too often? How can I experience that? If I don't feel bad long enough after I fail about something, then I'm not taking seriously the sin I just committed, right? 
We have those conversations with ourselves. How can I see myself as loved and accepted by God with all this stuff going on in me? There's a problem we all face, and we all wrestle with in that. Today, through some relatively simple visual illustrations, we're going to try to clarify that problem of how we tend to see God, how we tend to see sin, and faith, and what it means to be spiritually mature. And we're also going to propose a solution to that problem that I think as we learn to grasp and get, we're going to propose the solution centered around some, some of the core Christian doctrines that we understand but we misapply, we misperceive what it means in life. And it's, uh, it's going to bring us greater peace and joy when we start to get this. It's going, to, it's going to help us have a more deeply consistent, loving relationship with God. And it's going to help us be more compassionate and more engaged in relationship with people with whom we disagree. Over the next three weeks, we're going to expand on this and make it go deeper in some of our topics. But today's simplicity and the message is, to me, uh, beautiful because the Bible, that, uh, as the Bible talks about the core doctrines that we're going to talk about today, it uses actually very visual language. And so we're just going to try to bring to life some of that stuff that the Bible already says in a visual way. So let's, let's approach it this way. Let's talk about the problem, and then let's talk about the solution. So the problem. It doesn't take very long, uh, if you're listening to people and talking about faith issues, to hear somebody's story who kind of goes like this. They basically say, you know, when I was younger, I pursued God with great abandon, and when I got older, I realized a bunch of it was kind of well, a little bit of a fantasy, and it's because I, I struggle with this, you'll hear people say this, I struggle with this notion of God knowing every little detail about our lives, every little detail about the billions and billions of people on earth just seems kind of absurd. I mean, really, does God really care if I brush my teeth or when I brush my teeth or when I go to bed or, or if I wash the dishes or if I'm tying my shoes? And so we, we, we sometimes object to this idea of a personal God through little things, but then that same objection becomes something large too, right? Because if God knows that level of detail about every single one of us, then why does God not care more and solve and fix more of the little and the big problems we face, right? So we struggle with this on several levels. Whether little or big, many people struggle with believing and experiencing God as really personal and knowable. He still feels a little bit too far off. And to believe that it can be a whole lot more than that comes across to some of us sometimes as even a little bit absurd. But M.T. Wright comments on this view of life, and he says this. He says, what's truly absurd is the fact that when we make those objections, in our minds, we tend to picture God like ourselves. Just a little bigger and all-knowing, right? We want to make God picture like ourselves. But God is the creator of the world, he goes on and says. He's transcendent over and above creation, and yet he is also, in his nature, love. And therefore, it is completely natural for, for him to establish personal one-to-one relations with every single one of us. It may be natural for him, but for us, it doesn't always feel that natural. And that's partially because what Paul establishes in Romans 1 and 2, he establishes this idea that in some way, whether recognized or unrecognized, sin and the world has made us blinded to the clarity of what really is sin in our lives and the clarity of what, who God really is and who he wants to be in our lives. And then Paul goes on to develop in Romans this doctrine that is at the centerpiece of our Christian faith. It's called justification by faith. And we're going to look at that doctrine today because it talks about the why and the how we as humans can have real, open, honest relationship with God and that doctrine is both at the center of the problem that I'm going to describe today and our misapplication and misunderstanding and also at the center of our solution to today that I'm going to propose. The clearest presentation of this doctrine is found in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. And we're not going to read it. It'll come up on the screen and you can see some of the key words. 
This uh, doctrine of justification by faith in the Christian tradition is often explained this way, that we are justified because of Christ's perfect work for us. Justified just as if we had never sinned is the most common way preachers like to talk about it. In other words, all the sin and guilt of past, present, and future for our lives because of what Jesus did for us is forgiven, is taken away. And we now have this perfect path, this perfect open path for us into the very presence of God to know Him intimately and personally. And even in the midst of our continued struggles with sin, God doesn't look at us as though we are still sinning. He looks at us as though we are completely forgiven and renewed and whole and healed. The text actually uses the term obtained access. And that term is actually hearkening back to the idea of Jewish temple worship, where in the Jewish temple there were certain people each year who would be able to go into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. They had to be certain holy-type people to do that. And whether, uh, whether we are a committed follower of Jesus, whether you uh, consider yourself kind of a nominal Christian, or whether you just don't even believe, I'm going to suggest today that you still believe in that Jewish temple idea of worship. And we're going to illustrate that in just a second. It it, it affects every every way in which we live. Uh, There's a language out there in some of the writing circles that's called bounded set. That we, in our Jewish temple way of worshiping, think of life in terms of a bounded set. And these boxes are going to illustrate that. Bounded set is a, a term that comes from the mathematical world. And if you uh, are in that world and remember remember your math, uh, you understand that the bounded set is basically the idea that there is in and out. So just as a way to simply illustrate this simply, a bounded set would be I'm a man, and that would exclude woman from being in there because they're not male. I am an Ux fan, right? And I'm not even going to mention the people who are outside of that verbally because they are out, and they are evil, and they are bad, and the ux people are good, and they're in there, right? Right? And I am actually rooting this year, cheering for what will hopefully be a duck-buck national championship game. Can anybody go there with me? But I have to admit, I'm going to ask you for forgiveness and ask you to live in relationship above differences with me first, because if that's the case, then my bounded set gets smaller, and I'm going to be cheering for the ducks. Right? So, regarding faith and religion, this bounded set box leads us, even if we believe in justification by faith, back to a life that is based upon, and a faith that is based upon behavior and goodness. So, for example, we take the Bible's discussion of repentance and we stick it in a bounded set box worldview and we say that I repent and I clean up my act and I believe, and I get in the box. Because you're either in or out. You're either right or wrong. You're either good enough or not good enough. You're either a good guy or a bad guy in the bounded set worldview. The clearest presentation of how to... Uh, uh, the understanding of... Sorry, of... of, of, of um, Lost my place in my notes. I apologize. Most of us, uh, most of us take this bounded set, and it's not a simple in or out in the way we approach faith. Most of us take this step, and we uh, we look at people, and we believe, as the Jewish temple idea is, that there are some people who are holier than us. There are some people, and it secretly irks us. Because, and it makes us feel bad because we, live, we go through life believing that there are certain people who are more chosen by God and therefore they have greater access to God to hear His voice, to be used by Him. And I'm going to suggest today that's a primary driving force that all of us, every single one of us in, the, in this room, struggle with today. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that you can hear God Do you believe that you can experience His presence? Do you believe that you can minister to other people effectively in His power as well as, say, me, a professional pastor, or the Christian author that you admire and you read everything that you can by them, 
or the person sitting next to you who leads the Bible study that everybody absolutely loves going to their home group because they love the wisdom and the character and the impact this person has in their life or, or as good as the person who is sitting, maybe sitting next to you that you know that everybody goes to them when they want to be prayed for because they hear from God. Do you believe that you can hear from God? Do you believe that you can minister as well as any of those people? And I think the answer for many of us is no. Because we live in boxes in the way we approach our faith, too. You see, which box am I in is the question. We just don't think of one box. We think of, am I, am I good enough to be in this one? Or am I, am I really a little bit better and I can be in this one? Or am I, am I really, really knowledgeable and really, really saintly in everything I do and I get to stand in the ivory tower? Right? I mean, don't we really treat the world like that? And then there are those of you who think I'm not in the box at all with God. God couldn't use me in that way, couldn't work in me that way because I'm not in the box because of blank and you fill in the blank. So how could I expect him to speak to me? How could I expect him to work in my life and work through my life in a significant way? See, this thinking about faith in boxes sets us up to be performers and we all do it. This box view leaves each and every one of us struggling with guilt. Because even if you look at somebody and you say, well, Joe's spiritual is in the middle there, and they're really good, and they got the angel choir singing, right? Joe's spiritual knows he's really out here. And he's constantly struggling with guilt. This view of life, at best allows a life of faith that is constantly fraught with guilt and we don't get to experience the peace and the joy of Christ at the level that He wants us to experience. Because in the box view of faith, even though we are forgiven and justified by grace, in order to be a good Christian, we must live right enough. And even if you are here and you're, you would consider yourself not a churchgoer, you're unchurched, you're just visiting with us, or if you've got a friend, you'll hear people say, I am not a saint in everything, but I do more good than bad, and I have a good heart, so that's good enough. And what they're betraying is the fact that they view life and faith through boxes, because what they're saying is, I'm good enough, I'm in. And that's driving the way we think about faith. Second, this idea of a bounded set or a box idea of life establishes for us a clear measure of spiritual maturity as a believer. And it sets us up to be self-protective. Over the last few weeks in the Q&A time, uh, at the end of the messages, and if you uh, haven't been here, you can submit a question at any time, and we'll deal with it at the end of the service to either one of those numbers uh, or the web address on the bottom there through a text-enabled phone. But I've had questions each time where I've, I've looked at the questions, and some of you may remember this. I've looked at the questions, and I've said, well, that question kind of betrays a need to self-protect, right? To bunker, to hold us up. Because it makes us want to get in the box. The question is we want to get in the box and we want to build the walls higher around us because, because to fail, to fall, to sin, to, to be around people who are hostile to us is threatening to us because in the box worldview, even though we're justified by faith and we will, we will understand that, we still understand that to be a really good Christian, we've got to build these things up because the number one measure of spiritual maturity in this idea of life is based upon your moral performance and your purity. The best indicator of being in is how sin-free you are in the box view. And that becomes the measure of maturity. And frankly... It sets us up to live divisively. It sets us up to live through us and them attitudes with people. Even if we don't want to have that attitude towards people, but we unconsciously or consciously have a box view of life, we will communicate to people unwittingly that you're either in or you're out in this. 
So rather than staying connected to all of humanity, having a relationship above differences, we make ourselves feel better by getting in the box and building the walls high and alienating relationship and focusing on the differences in our lives rather than focusing on relationship. So we may say something like, um, oh, I used to get drunk, but now I, I don't do that. I'm not like them anymore. I used to be addicted to hardcore porn, but now I'm not like that, like them, anymore. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not prudish. I control the level of skin and, and, and sex that I see on the TV. Or, or, maybe, or maybe I rarely fall prey to any kind of lustful emotion other than towards my spouse. Or, or maybe, or maybe I am so good that I never, ever even have a thought or feeling like that. And I protect myself and I protect my kids and I keep everybody who would ever have any kind of a a thought like that or input in a story in their life as far away from me and my kids as possible. And we live in boxes. Should have made it shorter. I have short legs. So how do you have relationship above differences when we view faith this way? Because as a Christian, it makes it really hard for us when we're in a box worldview to have a relationship with a non-Christian, especially one who disagrees not just with our theology and thinking, but our, our very essence of our moral lifestyle. Or it makes it hard for non-Christians who think of their life and faith through a box idea to reach across that divide to have any kind of relationship and open, honest discussion with a person of faith about it because they have to reveal so much of their junk and that's too threatening to them. So, how do we break out of this vicious cycle of box and bounded set thinking and living? What's the solution? We're going to look at what the Bible teaches about justification by faith and what it is and what it is not. And the simplest way to do that is, is, is this way. Imagine this piece of glass as being your life. And as you being able to look through this, and the idea of this is that at creation, God created us completely perfect, beautiful, clear. We had clear relationship with one another, clear relationship with Him. Nothing at all marring our lives. But the Bible also teaches that sin came into the world and created defects in us. It creates corruption. It creates cracks. And think about this. If I'm trying to look through this, imagine I'm able to look through this and see clearly. Now all of a sudden you've got cracks and scars coming into this. And what does that do to the light? It distorts it, right? It makes it really hard to see things clearly. If you've got cracks in your, in your, in your life and your view of God, all of a sudden you can't see yourself clearly and who you are and you can't see God clearly and who He is either. Sin becomes a barrier between us and a perfect God. So, how do we become justified by faith? We become justified by faith, the Bible teaches, is when we trust that Jesus has completely forgiven all of our sins. Everything. Past, present, future that we will do, He has completely forgiven it all. And we trust that Jesus is God and He's the perfect representation of God and therefore we declare our allegiance to Him. Justification is actually a legal term. It's a term straight from the court where the gavel hits the judge's desk and he says, you are absolved, you are pardoned, you are innocent. It's all washed away. Nobody can, nobody can ever hold this against you ever again. See, the idea is that God now sees us this way. Even though we know we still look like this. See, the Bible doesn't deny that even though justification by faith says God sees us this way, that doesn't deny that we still really are this way. It actually has a term in theology and in the text of the Bible called sanctification, which talks about the process of how God brings healing and wholeness back to our lives. So it doesn't deny that this exists. It just says, I don't see you that way anymore. And legally, you're not perceived that way anymore. Sin and condemnation are completely dealt with. We have absolute open-door access to God himself to be in personal relationship with him. 
And the reality of the fact of that work is the reality is that work has been done for all of us who surrender and receive it. And it's even done for everyone in the entire world who has not ever received that. The work is already done. Now let's look at this a little bit further, what the, what the implications of this are in some of Jesus' own words. Jesus uh, um, talks in one of the most quoted verses and the context of that about the fact that now, given his work being done, there is really one sin and one sin only left for us to deal with. It starts in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And what Jesus is getting at in this statement is he's telling us the why of why he was sent, the outcome of his mission, and what it will mean and what it will look like about the way we relate to him once that is completed, which it has been completed. So we live right now in that place of this being done. And then he goes on in the next verse and gets more specific. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, for he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, when we live our faith in a box worldview, this verse is really confusing to us. Because a box worldview says the condemnation is all about good and bad, about the things I do and the things I don't do. But Jesus is saying here that this idea of condemnation or being free from condemnation and being completely accepted is solely determined by our orientation to Him. It's not the things we do and don't do, but it's who He is in our lives. It's not about the box. It's about relationship. And then He goes on and says this, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, what if instead of abounded set box idea of life and faith and spiritual maturity. It was actually something else. Something that perfectly fits with the idea of how God talks about repentance. Perfectly fits with the idea of justification by faith. Something that is truly Jesus-focused and looking to Him. And this concept, let's just talk about it in terms of another term that a lot of people talk about it. It's Instead of a bounded set, it's a centered set way of thinking. And if you'll turn your attention to the screens, we'll illustrate what this means. Uh, Instead of a box, think about a dot. And that dot in the middle, or that light in the middle, represents Jesus and who he is. And then think about us humans being somewhere around there. And the idea of centered set thinking is simply this. The most important thing is our orientation toward and our movement toward Jesus or away from Jesus. That's centered, set thinking. The whole goal of us as followers is no longer in or out of the box. It is whether we turn toward Jesus and toward the light. And our whole goal in relating to other people who are considering faith or not considering faith and struggling in life is how can we help them not get in the box but turn toward the light. See, Jesus uses an image in Matthew, in Matthew 7 that, that takes this a little bit further, but I, but I have to admit, for a lot of my life, thinking about this text that I'm going to read in the box mindset left me with the feeling of huge pressure of needing to be completely anal retentive and just self-controlled and, and it was all up to me, even though I was just, uh, justified by faith. And Jesus says this, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow 
and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And the pressure in the box world of view then becomes, I've got to be good enough to get in the ivory tower. I've got to be good enough to get in that really small place. It's not just good enough to be out here. And I used to think about this a lot of times in terms of a hike I took with my, with my dad and my brothers at age 10. It was, we were in National, uh, Glacier National Park. And there's this hike there. If you've been there, you'll, you'll know about it. Uh, you, uh, you walk along the edge, basically along the edge of this cliff. It's pretty much straight up, and it's almost all of it is a straight-down cliff. And the path at times gets as narrow as 18 inches, maybe even a little narrower. And it's just one of those places, if you're afraid of heights, you, you, you better not go on it. Uh, if you faint, you're dead. If you slip, you're dead, you know. And even this picture, even that picture, though, coming to mind throughout my life, the way I thought about that, betrays the box thinking. Because even that picture betrays the idea of a moral high ground that we're supposed to achieve in order to really be good followers of Jesus. It's something difficult. It's something that requires great effort on my part not to fall off the cliff. It's all up to me and my self-control to be a good Christian. But when we start thinking about this narrow gate, this tiny path in a centered set way, it almost, it just brings a sense of freedom. It almost brings this relaxation. Because the reality is there is a very narrow path to Jesus. If we turn just a little bit from the light, we're actually looking past him into the darkness. And it just leaves us, this leaves us in life with this sense that we don't have to perform morally. All we have to do is take our life and we have to turn it until the light flashes. You, know, you remember people flashing you in the face and with, with the sunlight off of their cell phone or their, or their watch crystal? It, it's kind of like that. You just turn towards Jesus and you find that narrow path. And whether you can go there and you feel strong and capable doesn't make that much of a difference. Our whole goal is to align to him. I need to align my eye and my life to him. So whether you're close to him or whether you're far away, out in the darkness and out in the sin, if you're way in the back of the auditorium and you are just out in sin and confusion, you'll never sit back there again, right? You're going to move up now. I should have preached this message a long time ago because everybody who's out in sin sits in back, right? No. Um, But if you're way in the back and you turn towards Him, you're actually following Him when somebody's sitting on the front row who's just orbiting Jesus not really looking at him, is not following him at all. But you see, in-the-box mentality makes us think that the ivory tower, when when we look at other people and we see the box, am I right? Yeah, we got that right there. A lot of times we look at people that we think are in the ivory tower because of their moral performance, and we go, those are the people who we want to be like. Those are the people who are following Jesus. And the reality of centered set thinking and the reality of what I think biblical thinking around justification by faith and repentance is they may not be at all following Jesus. And therefore, just because they're in the ivory tower, they may not even be the most mature. I think this image gets even a little more clarity by Jesus in Matthew 6. Uh, where Jesus says this. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then listen, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is healthy and you're looking at the light, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad and your whole body will be full of darkness, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And what an amazing way, I think, for Jesus to confront this whole idea that you can be close to the light, but you can be looking out here and you're full of darkness. Just because you can morally perform better than the guy who's way out there a million miles away from the light does not make you better or a follower of Jesus. And this idea destroys the box view of life. Following Jesus is about repenting, about turning towards him. And it's not a one-time repentance. The Bible actually teaches that repentance, turning 
away from something to something, turning away from darkness to light, is the habit of our lifestyle. When you can't do anything more, when you're overwhelmed, when you're confused, when you feel out of control, when you are certain that you're going to fall into sin again and you know you're even headed there, just turning even in that moment to the light is all that Jesus is asking us to do. That is the sum total of the expectation. Not the boxes of moral performance, just turn to the light. That means someone starting in the back of the auditorium could be spiritually more mature than a person who's sitting on the front row and they would never even get past the third or fourth row in from the back. Why? Because they learn to turn towards Jesus, turn towards the light more consistently, more regularly, and accept Him. When we allow God to destroy the bounded set box view of life for us, And instead, we accept his grace and we turn toward him, meaning we trust his forgiveness of our lives, that he's forgiven everything. And we live life knowing that there's really only one main choice we have to make on a daily, minute-by-minute basis, and that is to turn towards him. We can turn towards him because we trust his love. We trust that his ultimate picture of us is like this. And that even though we still look like this, that's all going to change one day. The acceptance is in place. You see, that's when we find peace. That's when we find rest from our guilt, from our worry, from our anxiety. That's when we find the joy that God wants us to experience in life, our rest from striving. It certainly doesn't mean that all the other behavioral sins are unimportant. I mean, obviously... These sins create pain. They create disappointment. They create disillusionment for us and for other people around us. We certainly want God to clean this up. But when we simply trust that that's already forgiven and that we can have access to Him, that we no longer have to turn away because we're, we're good enough. There is no box anymore for us. That leads us into this place of removing the weight of religion and the idea that the boxes puts on us. And it frees us to have relationship with God even though we're imperfect and relationship above differences with other people. Now we're going to develop this idea more over the next three weeks, but I wanted to pause here and we're going to take some questions. I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Mary Lutz up to join me and I'm going to invite Jeremy up to join me. And uh, so if you have questions and haven't submitted them, please fire them back to him. So. All right. Here's your first question. What are some of the stronger arguments for the box theology? Where does it come from and where is it most prevalent? Um, So most prevalent? I think it's most prevalent in all of us. And it's very prevalent in in, in the vast majority of churches in America. We've all been raised with box thinking. We all struggle with it. So prevalency, that's, that's a difficult one to say, but it, it was clearly prevalent in the Pharisees uh, in the New Testament. So anytime you read the Pharisees in the New Testament, you're looking at box theology. And it's not that box theology is completely unnecessary. The Bible talks about, actually, Paul develops in Romans this idea, and in Galatians further, this idea that the law, the moral performance boxes, were put there for a reason. And that reason is simply this. We, we realize that we can't be there. I mean, yeah, we've got people in the ivory tower, but like I said before, anybody who's in the ivory tower knows you don't belong there, knows you don't deserve to be there. And the whole box theology from a healthy standpoint of the law is to get us to the point of realizing we can't fix ourselves. We can't do it on our, we can't do it on our own. And it makes us completely dependent on turning toward light. Part of the, the challenge, I think, culturally of the box theology is it comes from our box culture thinking, which comes from the Greek. And I mean, you look at our educational system, a lot of our systems have the same frame, different academic disciplines in the educational sector. So it's not just about our theology. I think that 
what we need to remember, both in a positive and a negative sense, is that you cannot explain a constant by a variable. Um, in a negative sense, I can't say I'm a better Christian because I don't fill in the blank, right? In a positive sense, I can't say you have to become a Christian this way because this is how God touched me. We're reminded in Isaiah 55 that God's thoughts aren't our thoughts and his ways aren't our ways. There's no box. God made it all. Great. (laughs) Okay. Next question. How do we deal with friends or family who see themselves in the center box, especially when their church preaches or supports that view? That... That's a great question. I deal with it all the time. I mean, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, that the best way to do it is just to uh, to start thinking with a centered set and treat people uh, the way treat people the way that God sees them. You know, so without judgment, without condemnation. Um, you know, we, we are to ex- accept everybody um, on an equal plane. And then hopefully as we model that type of behavior, then they may catch some of it as well. Um, I think Mary may have a better answer than me. Uh, no, I, that puts me in a box. Uh, I like that? I'm going to take it that no, Mary doesn't have another one for that. Okay. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to go ahead. Uh, what about people who were saved uh, that have since turned to universalism? Are they going to heaven? Hmm. We're going to deal with uh, that question a lot more next Sunday because next Sunday is the topic is going to be, is there one way or many ways to Jesus? What about uh, people who were born and raised in a Muslim, Hindu, animist, or completely secular culture? And I've uh, never really heard the gospel and are so steeped in that from childhood. How could Jesus being the only way in receiving the gospel be even fair in that? So we're going to deal with that to a large extent next week. But let me answer, let me just say this. The center set thinking does not diminish the fact that we still need to make a choice. Right. And we can turn to the light and not make that choice for a long time. Mm-hmm. Or we can make that choice very quickly. And that choice is surrender and allegiance. It doesn't change that. It changes what it looks like. When we talk about that decision in box-minded churches, what that looks like is it looks like all the people who are really morally self-performing, you have to, you have to be a certain level of moral performance before you can really truly be a Christian. And that's not center-set thinking. And it's not biblical thinking. But we'll address that more next week, so we'll defer most of them unless you get some more. The only thing, uh, the way I think of centered set versus bounded set uh, is more as a discipleship model rather than, you know, a salvific model. And uh, so we, within that centered set, can you, Tommy, can you throw, or um, Dusty, can you throw up the graphic of the dots and the center with Jesus there, the light? Can you do that? Uh the ones that when they're moving around we're making them triple task on one computer yeah here we go here we go uh let's give it a try so this is great Uh, uh, that's perfect right there so when you look at these dots um right now when we look at them we don't know who's turning to jesus or who's even a follower of jesus but the way i like to think of it is that some of those folks may be followers of Jesus. And they that means that they have made a decision to, um, as John 3.16 says, you know, like, I, I commit my life to Christ, right? And, um, and so that kind of puts this, um, I would almost give them a different color of dot. This is almost like um, bounded set theology within a centered set model. But... Um, <laughs> It's, uh, no, I'm not, but, uh, you know, give them a different color so that it says, I have chosen to follow Jesus. And now I'm just, the discipleship model is it's that course correction along the way so that when I get away from the light or start veering off, 
the discipleship that we want to model or we want to people to understand is that to get back um, to Christ, to, to repent um, and move towards him. Whereas there are folks who, who, are, who are not following Jesus. They have not made that decision. And, um, and they're just kind of walking along regardless of whether or not they're heading towards the light. You know, because they haven't made that decision, um, uh, they're, they're not, I say it this way, I think the Bible's very clear that there's, they're not exclusively with Christ. And, and uh, because there is that exclusive claim in Christ, universalism really can't take hold in any of the theology uh, that we teach. That does affect the way we think about discipleship. So most churches think about discipleship in terms of teaching you all the Christian think, think, thinking and all the right behaviors of uh, moral performance behaviors. Be free of lust. Be free of, you know, greed. Be free of anger uh, inappropriately expressed. Actually, in the box thinking, anger usually is inappropriate, period. Uh, when it's a gotten emotion, emotion. Instead, the most important thing is your habits of turning towards God. Your habits of, of, of the ability to uh, have quiet time and pray and do the things to establish relationship. If you never learn great systematic theology, you will be a much more mature disciple if you get those habits of turning towards him than if you get all the theology right. Theology will be a blessing to you to learn as well. But it creates box people outside of the habits. In Second Corinthians 1, we are reminded that blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our blank, whatever it is, so we can comfort others. So I would say that the things that we sometimes identify as, well, you're in that box or that box or that box, those are the platforms that God uses for us to touch other people. And we need to remember that because it's in and through how he's worked in our lives as channels of blessing to others. Justin, do we have time for one more question? Yep, this is uh, more of a, a one-two punch here, so I'm going to put them together. In a centered set view, if a person is oriented away from Jesus, are they unsaved? Does the centered set view apply to those who are already believers in the box view? And then something that I felt followed up with it pretty well was when someone believes in God or Jesus... Does it do anything in their actions, uh, but doesn't do anything in their actions that would reflect it? Do they still get the reward of eternal life? And they were asking specifically about the word believe in John uh, 3.15. So these questions. Are... So, there, uh, boy, there's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any of us, and this is, this is the reason I think the Bible talks about King David as a man after God's own heart, and I think the center set view helps us deal with a lot of King David's really uh, yucky parts of his life. Because the guy was, the guy, if, if we're really honest, King David would not be allowed to be an elder, certainly, in almost any church in America today that was Bible-believing, nor in most churches would he even be allowed to lead a small group because of his character defects. And yet God says he has a heart after God. Why? Because even though in his culture and his day and his thinking, he was probably way back out there in the dark, he consistently turned towards God. Isn't it amazing when you read the story of David, times when you think, oh, I just make that decision and run with it. He stops and he turns and he pauses and he turns towards God and he asks him what is there. Now, does he do that perfectly? So can we assume that we're always going to be pointed to Jesus? No, I mean, it's, that's repentance. A lifestyle of repentance is constant course correcting. So the assumption is, yes, we can be committed to him and we are saved, but we are not always facing. We're constantly course correcting. And frankly, the more consistently we course correct, generally speaking, the more we're going to grow and the happier our life is going to be in that. So... Can somebody be a Christian in the box view of life? And maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of box view that says you become a Christian when you get rid of this sin, and they never really ever understood relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I've run into tons of Christian Christians in churches with that idea. So this becomes, the center set to me helps us as well take away a lot of the judgment. It's really nice and neat to judge according to the boxes. It makes us feel comfortable. That's part of the reason we create boxes. 
It makes it feel neat and clean, and we don't like messy. That's the reason we like boxes. But we have to, to a large extent, in the center of that view, be a little bit slower to judge uh, where somebody's at in terms of salvation and where somebody's at in terms of maturity. The reason why comic books and comic strips work is because the action takes place in between the frames where we fill in with our imaginations. Um, just like continuing to turn towards Jesus like King David did, we need to continue to be filled with the Spirit and ask God to inhabit that gap as we interact with ourselves and other people and with him. Okay, we're going to... We're going to head towards... Sorry, I didn't get much time. No, that's that? all right. <laughs> you good? Thank you, guys. Um, so we're going to head to some more worship, and here's what I want you to focus on as we head this way. I want you to just take some moment as the songs are being played and engage at the level you want, whether you want to sit and engage or whether you want to sing along and engage is your choice, okay? Just do what is best for you right now. But I want you to ask yourself this question, where am I? Am I, am I turned towards you, Jesus, or, is there, or are there parts in my life where I'm turned away because I'm just frustrated and I'm still in the box and I just can't turn towards you with that area because I'm too frustrated with where I'm at? And I want you to just ask Jesus to speak to you and touch your heart and show him the areas where you're not turning towards the light. And then just receive his invitation to turn. And if that invitation gets expressed by you praying, if that invitation gets expressed by you singing with the music, just turn towards him in this time. And let him say, let him speak to you about that area of your life. Some of you are here, and uh, I suspect you've been holding off making a commitment to actually even follow Jesus because you've, you've been honest with yourself, like all of us are. And you've said, I'm not good enough to be in the box. And until I'm good enough to be in the box, I can't declare that I'm a follower of Jesus. I want you to explode that box today. I want to invite you to make a decision today to declare your allegiance to Jesus and to accept the gift that he wants to give you today. Let's worship. Can you make this image just part of your life this week? When you feel like you aren't worthy to pray? When you feel like I'm going to mess up and I know I'm not going to be able to stop myself, even in that moment, would you just say, turn to the light and just invite Jesus to be there with you? And for all those people around you who frustrate you because of the moral discord in your relationship, you disagree over moral issues and it really pains you and it really does bring difficulty to your life. If you can just picture this, your job isn't to get him in the box. Your job is to help him to turn to Jesus and turn to the light and receive the forgiveness right where they are at, whether they take another step in that area or not right now or even for a while to receive that forgiveness. It really changes the way we look at ourselves and it changes the way we look at one another. And we're going to develop that idea over the next couple of weeks as we deal with the one way many ways next week. We're going to deal with the topic of homosexuality and gay marriage the following week. We're going to talk about, after that, we're going to talk about abortion and the issue of choice. We're going to take on some really difficult topics, very emotion-laden topics for every single one of us in the room. And we're going to do it in a setting because I don't think if we, can, if we can't have relationship above differences, if we can't learn to be the kindest people on earth, even in the midst of these difficult issues, then what good is our faith? Right? So I want to invite you to return the next few weeks, bring guests, bring friends. We're going to wrestle with this stuff and we're going to, and we're going to come to some ideas and develop the centered set idea and how it frees us to have kind relationship with people. I wanted to take a moment to take some questions and invite uh, Jeremy and uh, Dr. Mary Lutz to join me uh, on stage, and we would love to take any questions you've had. So many illustrations, man. You have me and Tommy running around back here, turning on lights and flipping cameras, and it's all over the place. Hold on just a moment. Uh, didn't get this one typed yet, but... 
if you could answer this, and I'll repeat it for you if you need me to. Um, so are you saying if someone is saved uh, just by turning towards Jesus, even if they are really far away from God? So is that true? Is that they're saved just by turning towards Jesus, even if they're far away from God spiritually? We're going to deal with that a lot more next week in our topic, but let me just answer it this way. Um, you want to turn back, and I think there's another click for the next thing. Um, this does not eliminate the need for a decision. But it certainly changes the decision. When we think of life in a box worldview, uh, can you click one more time? We think that crossing the line of faith... See, I figured this question might be a question, so... Um, we figure that crossing the line of faith is where that little red circle happens in somebody coming to God because we are still thinking in the boxes. The reality is, go ahead and click again. Might take two clicks, I'm not sure. The reality is that that decision of faith and turning toward God and declaring allegiance could happen anywhere on the continuum. Somebody could turn toward God way in the back of the room and be saved because they make that declaration of allegiance and somebody way up front uh, might be, they might not make the decision until they get all the way up front. In here, and then we went towards Christ. There still is a decision to be made. It might help if we change the locus of the decision to be not be a box around Jesus, but to be in our individual hearts. Then that changes everything. Yeah. Only God can see our hearts. I had another one come in. What are one or two ways to help me step out and live outside of the box and live in greater faith in Christ? Um, I'm looking at the boxes trying to I figure can, it out. Let me, let me take a stab at it. Um, one or two ways. One way in response to ourselves is I, I remember several years ago there was an Olympic Games and it was a gymnast who was performing from the United States and she was expected to win a gold medal in the all-around, much less that particular event, and it was the vault. And she performed the vault couple of times and did horribly and she was devastated and she went on to the next exercise and I think it was the the bars and did not do well because she was so upset because of how she performed in the vault well then the judges got together because somebody asked a question and they measured the vault and they realized the vault wasn't set right so they allowed everybody who had already performed the vault to perform again and she performed a perfect ten what if she had seen herself through God's eyes or not seen herself through the lens of performance when she went on to the next event? It would have changed everything. And sometimes I think we live our lives that way in a box kind of view and, and look at ourselves through our performance and not through the, the eyes of God. So if we change our perspective towards ourselves, that will help. But the other thing is changing our orientation towards other people and viewing them as God sees them and treating them as if there was no box. Um, we are all equal in the sight of God and loving, choosing to love them by choosing to say or do whatever communicates love to that person in that moment. Yeah, I, I, that's, ex that's almost exactly what I would say. And I think that... Just say um, ditto. Yeah. Okay. Perfect answer, Mary. Um, I, what I would suggest, I, I think it's harder for us to um, to think of ourselves in a centered set uh, thinking. I think it's easier for us to begin this by considering other people around us first. So what I would do, Mary, is I would flip what you said and, and start with um, looking at others the way that God sees them and then allow that to trickle into our own life so that we can begin to see ourselves the way God sees us. Uh, I think that, that makes the transition a little easier. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Let me, let me just say one other thing on that, too. I think, I think for me, one of the constant struggles is when I start to get in the box, I do turn away from God. Every time, if you, if you sense yourself putting up a wall to prayer, if you sense yourself saying, I can't pray and expect God to move through me to bless somebody else, then you're living in a box. So it really becomes just this struggle to, to say, okay, I feel like I'm here, but I'm still, <laughs> still going to turn to God. 
and I'm going to try to reorient my emotions to what really is true. The fact that I am forgiven, that all this stuff is washed away. It doesn't make any difference anymore. What makes a difference is if I turn toward God. Even if I can't take a step toward God to change anything. Even if I know I'm about to fall and I'm going to do something that I don't want to do, pausing and maybe even inviting Jesus into that with you while you do it. Forcing yourself to turn towards him reorients reorients yourself. It just really becomes a habit. Very good. I had a couple uh, come in that I grouped together here. What are some of the stronger arguments for uh, the box theology. Where does it come from and where is it most prevalent? The Pharisees make a really strong argument for the box thinking. And uh, we'll probably look at it a little bit more at some point as we develop it. But even Paul, in the flow of Romans, makes a very strong argument for why box thinking. He talks about the law in in Romans and Galatians and the role that it has in our lives. There There is an element of the law that we can't escape. It does define healthy and unhealthy. It does define what's going to bring pain and what's going to bring blessing to us. And it does drive us to realize that we can't fix ourselves, right? And so there's a certain amount of the box thinking that is the law that makes us realize that. But then we need to step out of it and realize also the path of Jesus and the fact that there is really only one way to be ever fixed of any of that box stuff, and, and we can't do it. The only thing we can do is turn towards the light. Um, but the Pharisees were great box thinkers, and so a lot of our churches are as well. And we run into emotional problems and behavioral problems and tensions in our life, and we want to solve them by making somebody change instead of helping them just turn towards Jesus and recognize that if they never make it more than one step beyond where they are, if they turn towards Jesus, then they are fully accepted, fully forgiven. But we want them to get to the front row because it's easier for us. So box thinking makes us think for easier solutions. Yeah, I don't know that the box concept is limited to matters of faith or theology. I mean, think about our educational system. Think about institutions of higher education with academic disciplines that become so incredibly specialized that somebody's like, I finally have the corner on this knowledge. No, you don't. Um, maybe you know more than you did before or we did before, but the reality is you can't exhaust an inexhaustible God. So we're never going to know anything, uh, everything about anything, just the way it is. Very good. Jeremy, anything to add? No, sir. All right, we'll carry on. All right, this will probably be the last one, and I just want to let you know if um, you sent in a question that wasn't asked or you're interested about uh, questions in the 11 o'clock service, uh, that both sets of questions will be on our uh, podcast. So make sure you subscribe to that or you can find it on our website. And here's the last one. Uh, they actually put a scripture reference in here first, First John 3, 9. No one who is born of God will continue sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are. And then I shortened down the question. I hope it still gives light to it. But how do we know who the children of God are when we use this centered set light theology? Light as in illuminated, not light as in diet, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you look okay. at me. I don't always want to go first, so but I'm happy to do it. Um, it becomes messy, doesn't it? And that's also part of the reason we revert to the box, because the box is much neater and cleaner. Because how do we know, how do we know without a box whether someone's actually turning towards God more often or not? The reality is we don't always know that. We can see typically a change in more increased light, more increased fruit in people's lives, because if our eyes are healthy, the Bible says our whole body will be healthy. If we are turning towards the light, it will make a difference in our lives. Even if we don't feel like we can take a step, the power of God, when we turn to Him, will transform our lives. So yes, we can see that, but you can't see it, but you can't make that judgment just based upon moral 
behavior changing. It really is a relational thing and an evidence of God's presence and God's spirit. We're encouraged in the Bible to test the spirits. And we can pray and ask God to give us wisdom and discernment. And he'll give it to us generously, the Bible says. The other thing I would say about that is that we're also told we have the mind of Christ because we're in the body of Christ. We're, we're part of his church. And if you read in Acts 4, the church grew because they were of one heart and one mind. So the only time you can get a whole group of people to agree on anything is when there is a center of it all, and that's Jesus. In a lost and dying world where people are struggling, where it's dark, whoever has the light as the leader. So it's our job to collectively hold up the light. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.